know, this is going to be our second Easter together, and man, it's been a great couple of years, and um, or almost two years, I guess. Uh, but man, I'm just so excited to see what God's got for us uh, this morning. And um, you know, for us, you know, that Easter as Christians, this is such a pivotal point for us. Uh, and even the Bible tells us that if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then everything we're doing is meaningless. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14, Paul says this, he says, If Christ has not been raised, preaching is in vain, faith is in vain, faith is futile or, or meaningless, and you are still in your sins. And so the fact that Jesus did die on a cross, and not only died on a cross, but that Jesus rose from the grave... That's what we celebrate. It's not just an April 21st kind of thing. This is an all year thing. This is the reason why we do what we do is because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and put on human flesh, uh, uh, submitted himself under the will of his Father, uh, becoming lowly, becoming a servant for our behalf. And that's what we celebrate this morning. And that's why this is so important. The cross and the resurrection are everything. And we can't underappreciate or allow ourselves to be unmotivated by what this means for us. And so this morning, that's what we celebrate, and that's what this is, uh, this is all about every day of the year, not just today. But, uh, you know, and for us as a church, this is the very foundation at which we stand on. Uh, the thing, the, the verse of Scripture that motivated us towards the name that we chose and everything in First, uh, first Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucifi crucified. You know, this is the implications that it has on my life and has the implications it has on us as a church. And so, um, you know, that's just, that's for free for you this morning. But if you want to, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. If you can turn there with me. Um, if you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screens. And I encourage you to bring a Bible, whether that's on your phone or a, a hard copy. I love to have a hard copy that I can write in, note in, that type of thing. It's very important for us as we go through these scriptures that you see that we're not making these things up, uh, that, that you can, I hope, see as we walk through this how we engage God's Word together and allow it to speak into our, into our life where we are at. And so, if you could, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, reading down to verse 15. This is Paul talking to believers here. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So, I always like to lay a little context, a little groundwork, so that we know where we're at. Because knowing where we're at and why what is being said is being said is very vital to us truly understanding what the author is trying to tell us here, what Paul is trying to say to us. So, and, uh, and the, the people, uh, uh, the Colossian people here, what they're experiencing is they're experiencing Jewish Christians coming in and trying to teach them kind of a warped view of Christianity. That basically what it does is it takes the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and it it diminishes it, okay? Because what they are coming in and telling them is that there are these other things that the Christians needed to do to get to heaven, okay? To have a to to be accepted by God. That the people, uh, the these leaders, these people are telling these Christians here in uh, uh, these Colossian people, they're saying that hey, there are these festivals and these feasts that you have to partake in. 
Okay? There are these things that you have to do, these rules, these, these activities that you have to participate in to make it to heaven. It also tells them that they have to be circumcised. It tells them you know, to, that you have to do this religious ritual before you can get into heaven. Okay, he also tells them that you have to live in this extreme form of self-denial. And when we think about that, think of like monks who take a vow of silence or, or chop off some part of their body, a finger, toe, something like that. You know, just these extreme things of self-denial that they're not going to eat. They're going to starve themselves. You know, this, they're putting these expectations on these people in a kind of putting it in a Christian box and then presenting it to them like, hey, this is what Christ wants from you. Which what we'll see is counter counter to what Paul has been teaching them. And that's why Paul, in all his epistles, he starts out by writing the gospel and writing doctrinal truth on who Jesus was and what Jesus has done and then how we respond to that. We've been talking about it in Ephesians, and it's the same kind of structure here in Colossians. But uh, they, they tell them all these rules, all these regulations, and, they, and then kind of the final thing is that, that through all those things, with Christ's help, you may make it to heaven someday. Okay, that's kind of the, the religious groundwork that's been laid before these people. And so Paul is speaking into this. Paul is having to correct this because what he's having to say to them is that this is not the gospel. That to follow these religious rules that these men are laying before you is not what Christ has called you to. Because what we'll see as we look through uh, what the scripture is going to tell us this morning is that Paul is telling them that Christ alone is sufficient. That there is nothing else that you need other than faith in Christ. Putting your faith in the work, the finished work of Christ. Because what do we celebrate on Good Friday? We celebrate the proclamation of Jesus saying, it is finished. He's not saying it is started. He's not saying it's just begun. He's not saying there's a little bit more left to do. He says, it is finished. And what we'll see this morning is that that sufficiency for my salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. And that's what he's inviting us to this morning, teaching us that Christ's work is sufficient. And so the two things that I want us to see this morning, um, to see what Christ has done for us on the cross and dying for us and then raise it, being raised from the dead, is first that Christ erased the penalty. That Christ erased the penalty. Read with me in verse 13 down to 14. And he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... So telling them that, that you who were, who were dead because of your sin, because of the things that you had done wrong, because of the uncircumcision of your flesh, or because you hadn't partaked in these religious acts, these religious things, said you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So this, the record of debt, uh, another, some other translations say the certificate of debt or, or this uh, other translation may say the handwritten charges against us. Speaks of this legal term. Okay, it speaks of this legal statement with expected payment. And we know that God is a holy God, that God is a just God, God is a perfect God. And that under the law... You know, that's what Paul is trying to tell them here, that under the law, you know, for us, we have to realize that we're all sinners. The Bible tells us we're all sinners and fallen short of God's glorious standard. That, you know, if we need any standard to, to decide whether we're a sinner or not, just take the Ten Commandments, start walking your way down it. And I'm telling you, there's going to be at some point in that where you fall short. 
If at the simplest thing uh, to, to not bear false witness or to not lie, you know, we've all done that. And even the Bible tells us that Jesus came in later on. He says, hey, they tell you not to murder, but I, I tell you that if you're angry with your brother, then you've already murdered. He tells you, uh, they say not to lust or commit adultery. But I, he says, but I tell you, if you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So we fall so short of that. And the Bible tells us that if we fall short in one, we fall short in all of them. Galatians uh, 3.10 speaks of this. It says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And do them. So when it speaks of a curse there, we're not speaking of uh, like a, a, a witch or a voodoo curse or some weird like superstitious thing. Like we're talking when the word, when it says the word curse, it's speaking of God having to turn away from something that is sinful. Because God is holy. And that God can't, can, will not deal with it, cannot touch it. Because it is, it is, it is cursed. Because, because he, the curse is God turning away. And so for us, we have to understand that the payment for sin is so costly because the penalty for sin is so heavy. And God, in the very beginning, in the Old Testament, He set up this plan. He set up this, uh, this practice to have those sins forgiven. You know, we talk about it all the time where there was a sacrificial system where blood was shed. And then once a year, the priest would come and they would, slay, you would, uh, they would sacrifice a, 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 a ram or a sheep. And it would, uh, the blood would, would offer a atonement or would offer forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins for that year. And then every year they were having to go back and do this. And so uh, in Galatia, and we see this even in the very beginning in Genesis 3.21, we see blood shed as soon as sin comes into the world. In Genesis 2.21, uh, it says that uh, when, remember, Adam and Eve are naked in the garden and they're ashamed and they're afraid. And what does it say that God does? It says that God clothes them with skin. This is the first time we see anything put to death is as soon as sin entered the world, death happened, bloodshed happens. Listen, when there is sin, there's death. And that's what God is trying to help us with. That's what God is trying to provide us a way in, that God set up this system of atonement. And atonement, you can think of it like this. Uh, I saw it broken down as at one meant that we are meant to be one and that atonement is us coming back together with God that is allowing us to have that fellowship with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the beginning when they would walk and talk with God and when sin entered the world we were broken it, the, that relationship was broken and so when God offered a way for atonement he offered a way for us to be at one where we were meant to be with God. And so God has offered this, uh, this plan, this system. In Leviticus 17, 11, it says that I've given it to you, that blood would offer forgiveness, atonement. This is the first time we see the word atonement used. Atonement for your sin or forgiveness for your sins. You know, because sin brings death. Because sin brings problems. Because sin brings hurt. Because sin brings all these things. If God were to allow our sin to go unpunished, if God were to allow sin to be as is, it would be as if it would be like a judge who sets a man free who is guilty of, crime, of a crime. It would cheapen the law. It would cheapen the law and it would leave the injured party without restitution. But what we celebrate today, right, is we celebrate God sent debt for us, paid when He gave His Son on the cross. And so He not only paid the debt, but He, uphold, he up, upheld the holiness of the law. He upheld the standard of godliness and holiness that He's called us to. But it's not by 
our own works, right? It's not by what I've done good. Because listen, I say it all the time, Jake's rotten. I'm not good in myself. I can't do good. Left up to my own abilities, I'll more than likely do wrong. But what Paul is speaking to the people of, Col- uh, of uh, uh, the Colossian people here is he's telling them that Christ is sufficient that it's not in your work. But we were singing about it earlier. You know, this, this grace that I don't deserve, that I couldn't earn, that God has offered it. We've talked about it before, that, that grace, is, is, uh, it, grace is not, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. God has offered that to us. And so for us, when, when we think, you know, when we read the verse of, for the wages of sin is death, when you think of the word death, think of separation. Isaiah 59, 2, it says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. So when you think of the word death, you think of separation. For the physical death, it's separation from our body. And spiritual death, it's separation from God. And what's beautiful about what God has done for us is that our sins destined us for separation, but in our separation, God brought an intervention. God saw fit to intervene. And all through Scripture, we see God intervening for His people in spite of the penalty that they deserve. Right? We see it in Genesis 3, that God was seeking them out. That in Genesis 3, whenever Adam and Eve have sinned, God is walking into the garden and He's calling out to them, Where are you? He's seeking them out, even though they've broken the penalty of, they've broken the, penalty of the law. They, they, they deserve death. They deserve punishment. Well, what does God do? He seeks them out, He clothes them, He feeds them, and He sends them on their way. In Genesis 14, God sends Abraham to go save Lot, even though Lot made a bad decision, being in a bad place, to, do, to be in a sinful people at Sodom. God allowed Abraham, sent Abraham to go and save him. In 2 Samuel 12, 1, right after David has had an affair with Bathsheba, has, has sent her husband out to the front lines to be killed and murdered, David has fallen, David has messed up royally, God sends the prophet Nathan to go and confront David, to call him to repentance, to bring him back. God had every right to punish David because he, had, he, he deserved the penalty of his sin. But God sought him out. God sought him out. In John 11, Jesus comes to resurrect Lazarus. In John 21, Jesus seeks out Peter after Peter had denied him. In front of him. He, Peter had denied him and God sought, Jesus sought him out and invited him in like we talked about last week. In Acts 9, Jesus seeks out Paul, confronts Paul. Church, the beautiful thing about in spite of the penalty of sin being death and separation, God is seeking intervention for us. God is seeking after us. God is wanting to invite us into that. That's what we celebrate here on Easter Easter weekend is the death of Jesus. Is, is God providing that intervention for us. And then the resurrection we'll talk about later is, is, is showing us that what He has defeated. Showing us what He has truly defeated. That God hates and punishes sin, but He loves the sinner. And in order to redeem us, He offered the one He loved. He offered The Son of God, He offered Himself for us. Hebrews 2.9 says, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death so we wouldn't have to. Jesus was tasted that separation so that we wouldn't have to. 
1 Peter 2, 21 and 24 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. Jesus bore the hurt and the wounds and the suffering so we wouldn't have to. Jesus bore the separation from God. Another point, and, and the Bible tells us that Jesus was cursed, as we talked about earlier, cursed where God turned His face from Him because He was bearing our sin. He was bearing, and I love that, that it's so individualized where He said that He suffered for you, that He suffered for each and every one of us, that it's not limited, that it's, it's unlimited, that He's offered that suffering and sacrifice for all of our behalf if we will, if we will allow Him to, if we will put our faith in that work. And then I love as it continues down and he says that this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, when I was going to nursing school, there are a lot of times whenever I was taking a test or something like that. And my wife can attest to this because I was a terrible studier. And uh, I'm a better nurse now than I was then. So if I ever end up being your nurse, you can have confidence in me. But I was a terrible student. And so there's a lot of times I'm standing in front of a test and I'm thinking just Give me the answer. Like, I just need the answers. And just looking around trying to think, will anybody help me? Well, what Jesus has done for us is, is, is as if Jesus is sitting in that class with us. He looks over at our test and says, yeah, that's rotten. That's bad. And so what Jesus does is he leans over and he grabs our paper and he writes all the right answers on it. And then he writes his name on top of it. But then it's not only that. It's not only that. But it's in the test that we've taken where we've put all the wrong answers on it. Jesus takes that test and puts His name on it. That Jesus bears all our wrongs. Jesus bears where we've fallen short. And, and, and as we say that, a lot of times we go to this place in our mind where we've fallen short and where we sin and where we struggle. And as you think of those things and lock onto those things, I pray that you would hear me saying that Jesus desires to bear those things for you. Because he died for that. He died for that. And I love that it says that he set aside nailing it to the cross, that our record was his record. What we see in scripture is that when people were crucified, not only were they stripped and hung on a cross, beaten, bruised, and exposed, but above them was nailed their wrongdoings. That they would nail their uh, crimes, they would nail the things that they'd done wrong above them for everyone to see. So there was this element of shame that, that they wanted them to be shamed to, 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 to a level of dirt, just rotten. Like not only are they just so vulnerable right now, but look how rotten they were. Look at all the things that they've done wrong. And the people would just gather and they would see these things. And so when Jesus, when Paul says this here, he says that he set it aside by nailing it to the cross. Jesus is calling out to us that you can nail your wrongdoings on my cross. I'm dying for you. Your wrongdoings will be my wrongdoings. I'll, I'll bear these things. I'll bear the shame. I'll bear the guilt. God does not, Jesus does not intend for us to have to experience the shame of our sin. Even though we may experience the effects of our sin, He calls us away from the shame. He says, I've already died for the shame of your sin. Let me have it. Let me have it. 
But for a lot of us, as we, as we come into church or as we deal with other Christians, a lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we bear a lot of shame in the things that we deal with. We bear a lot of shame with our, maybe our mindsets towards God. We bear a lot of shame in the way maybe that we parent our kids or, 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 or bear a lot of shame in the way that we lead our families as husbands or the way that our relationships are with our spouses or the way that we live out in the world amongst people. We bear so much shame in that. And then we allow that under the penalty of the law, we allow that to cause that separation between us and God. When God is looking into our lives, Jesus looks into our lives and he says, give me your shame. You don't have to be separated. The thing that I pray that we could always be as a church here at Crosspoint is be a safe haven for, and a space for grace for people to come in that you don't have to have it all together and you shouldn't have it all together when you come to God. God's the one that puts those things together. That we are an imperfect people seeking a perfect God and it's okay to not be okay. Because Jesus wants to pay that debt for us. Jesus wants to pay that price for us, and he wants to not only pay that debt, but then it's, he wants to set it aside. He wants to put it away. He wants to get it out of our way. Listen, it's not that Jesus just went to the bank and paid our loan and paid our debt off, but Jesus burned the bank down and all the records. There's no sign of it. Psalm 103 tells us that he cast it as far as the east is from the west, that as far does he remove our transgressions from us, that he is not just holding them before us. Remember, remember, James, this is what you did wrong. Don't forget this. No, he says when he offers forgiveness, it's gone. He set it aside. It's put to death. He's bearing it. He says, let me have it. So that we can move forward out from under the penalty of the law. He says, you don't have to live in that anymore. That we, he calls us to stop living in the shadow of the penalty and live in the light of the prize. God has called us to a prize and that's to live in the life of Christ Jesus. That when we put our faith in Jesus, we are identified in his life, his resurrected life. In a new life where we're not under the shadow of the law, under the penalty of the law anymore. So not only has Christ erased the penalty, but Christ has erased the power. Christ has erased the power. That he removed the penalty of our sin, but he also gave us power over our sin. Over the things that separate us from God. And read with me in Colossians 2.15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That Jesus' death and resurrection has stripped the enemy of its power. That, the, that Jesus' death on the cross took the weapons away from the enemy. He took the weapons away. In Hebrews 2.14 it says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, the, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. They were subject to lifelong slavery. Before Christ, we are in a life of slavery, living in fear because we are under the shadow of the penalty of the law. But in Christ, he has pulled us out from under that shadow, not only pulled us out from under it, but he's taken away the enemy's power against us. But what we have to understand is that any power the enemy has against us is power that we've given him. We are allowing him. That authority. We are allowing him that power because the Bible tells us that we have the power 
of a sound mind, of self-control, not a spirit of fear. He has given us everything we need to live a godly life. And that if we are living under the influence or under the power of the enemy, I'll hold on to that for you. If we are living under the influence of the enemy, it's because we are submitting ourselves under that influence. We are submitting ourselves under that influence because in Christ we are not slaves, but we are made free. Colossians 1.14 says, In whom we have redemption. Or that word redemption means freedom. And listen, I'm not speaking of a, of a sinless life where you never fall under the temptation of a sin or you never find yourself at, the, at your wit's end with something that you're dealing with. Listen, there's a difference between the draw of sin and the power of sin. You're always going to be drawn to sin because you have a fleshly nature. You're always going to be drawn. Your old self doesn't die away. You have to put your old self to death daily. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And listen, for you, you will always be drawn to the things opposite of what God wants for you. But for us, we have to understand that even though we're drawn to sin, sin has no power over us. That we don't have to be slaves to sin. If we're slaves to sin, it's because we're choosing to be slaves to those sins. Because as a believer, as a Christian, God has taken away the enemy's power to submit you. You know, in, uh, in 1973, they had this event happen that, that gave us a new kind of term. And a lot of times these how terms and different things come about is from a situation, an experience, or a person. Well, in 1973, in Stockholm, Sweden, four people were held hostage during a bank robbery. And during this bank robbery, they saw this event happen uh, with these people, is that these four people actually began to sympathize with their captor. They actually they created this bond with the individual that had them held hostage. And so from that situation came this term or this mental uh, uh, state, mental disease, uh, that happens kind of after these traumatic experiences that they called Stockholm Syndrome. And so... What this is, is that a, a captor or an abuser, they also see this in abusive relationships, that a captor or an abuser terrifies their victim, that they cannot escape, they're in this place where they cannot escape, and they threaten physical and psychological terror on them. And so what happens in these situations, what happened here in 1973 and what still happens today in these situations, is that the victims, they need nurturing and they need protection. They need nurturing and they need protection. But being isolated from anyone else, the victim begins to look towards the captor or the abuser for that nurturing and for that protection. And so if the, the captor or the abuser shows any, any bit of kindness or nurturing or protection towards them, they immediately bond to them. They immediately or, or, or begin to show remorse and empathy and sympathy towards them and begin to create a connection with them. And so what happens in this is they begin to ignore the rage, they ignore the hurt, they ignore the fear, they ignore the fact that they're still in a captive state and they have this bond with the captor. And what happens is that they find comfortability in captivity. And so for us as Christians, this is a lot of the place where we live our lives sometimes after we become a believer, is that we begin to kind of associate our bond back to our captor of the abuser, or the Bible would call him our accuser, because 
because we become comfortable, we, we find some type of nurturing or some type of protection in these, the, the abuse that the enemy is throwing at us, the, the sin that the enemy is laying before us that we're partaking in, we become comfortable in captivity. We become comfortable in that. We, we find a place to live in that. Many of us, maybe, here, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you're living in this captivity of sin because you're comfortable, because it's safe. Even though it brings hurt, even though it brings shame, even though it, it, it brings dysfunction to the life around you, you're comfortable in that place. And so you're submitting yourself under the power of your captor, of your abuser, or who Jesus, God would call him the accuser. We've submitted ourselves under that. That, we, we, uh, that what we do, when we submit ourselves under the power of the accuser, under the power of the enemy, is that we, we as captives, we empower the captor. We as the abused, we empower the abuser. We feed him. Church, the enemy has no power over you. And if you are under under attack by the enemy right now, it's because we are allowing him to be. Because we are allowing him reign over us. We are allowing him that place in our lives. Hebrews 10.39 says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere. Because what God has done for us, what Jesus did for us on the cross, not only stripped the enemy of his power, stripped the enemy of his weapons, but he's shamed the enemy. The second half of verse 15, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so this idea of, of putting them to open shame is a lot like what Romans, uh, the Roman armies would do with their enemies, is they would strip them down and parade them through their cities. They would take their, the, who they defeated, they would take their enemy, and they would parade them through the city to let everyone see, this is who we defeated. We overtook them. We are stronger than they are. And so in this verse, when it's saying that he put them to open shame, God has done the same thing with our enemy. That God has paraded him through and said, this is the one I've defeated. He has no power. He is under my submission. He has no authority. This is what God has done to the enemy. He has put him to shame. He has paraded him around to show that he is defeated. Galatians 5.1, it says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And so last week, when we were talking about in Matthew 16, when God is building his church, you know, we talked about a weapon of the enemy that we didn't spend a lot of time on. But what weapon does the enemy use against us? Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus is telling Paul, he says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Church, I don't know about you, but gates are never used as offensive weapons, right? And in this sense, what these gates are meant to communicate is not an offense against us, but a captive state that keeps us in. And so he tells Peter there in Matthew 16, he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That you don't have to be kept in, separated from God. That the only weapon the enemy has against us 
is to neutralize us, to keep us in a captive state when we hold the keys to the gate. Remember, Jesus told Peter, he says, you have the keys. We have the keys to break free. And if we're in captivity, if we're submitted under the power of sin, it's because we're choosing to stay there. And that overcoming it is not in my own strength, and overcoming it is not instantaneous. But it is in our walk, it is in our process, it is in our constant pursuit of God through Christ that we begin to overcome those things. The enemy's weapon is to contain us and keep us from walking out when we hold the power to overcome it. So why does any of this matter? The fact that Christ erased the penalty, the fact that Christ erased the power of sin over us. Why does it matter? Because I don't know about you, but I know for me that too often we continue to walk chained to the penalty and overwhelmed by the power of sin when we don't have to. We don't have to walk as victims. We don't have to live defeated. We don't have to stand outside of God's work. We can participate. We can be involved. You know, some of the things that hurts me the most is I see people, whenever they fall into sin, they feel like the only option they have is to separate themselves from the church, to run away. I've fallen into sin. I've struggled. I've done something wrong. I have to run away from, from the church. I have to give because I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy to praise. I'm not worthy to be around God's people. I'm not worthy to hear His words spoken, which is absolutely opposite of what Paul is teaching the church uh, here, the Colossian people. He's telling them, God has already done all the work. Work. Come be here. Come be amongst God's people. Let the Spirit of God speak to and through you in this element. The place that we should want sinful, broken people is amongst the church, not out in the world for the world to deal with. Because we know that the world will chew them up and spit them out when as we should be those people pointing them to this moment. Hey, there's not work you have to do. There's not anything that you do to reassure yourself to heaven. He says that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has paid the record, canceled the record of the debt. He's nailed it, take, set it aside, nailed it out of the way so that it has no weight on you anymore. Because listen, when we are walking under the shadow of the penalty and in submission to the power, we lose sight of what Christ has done for us. And what we need to understand in Romans 5, 8, but God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, verse 10, In this love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be a propitiation or a replacement for our sins. And I love this quote. From Matt Chandler, he says, God does not regret saving you, and there is no sin you commit that is beyond the cross. Church, there is no sin that you commit now, have committed, or will commit that is beyond the cross. Landon, you can go ahead and come up, and we're going to wrap up this morning, but I, just, I, I hope that we can understand this truth. Because remember, not only does God taking us out from under the penalty of sin shows us He's forgiven us of our past, 
but the fact that He's erased the power of sin and death over us shows us that He's prepared our future. And that there's nothing that you did and there's nothing that you're going to do that the cross cannot cover. And that the resurrection of Jesus cannot conquer. Church, the most important thing for me in my life is the moment when I realized that God didn't save me or choose to save me because of who I was. He chose to save me because of who Christ was. You know, because I spent a lot of time on the outside of a relationship with God looking in thinking, there's no way, there is no way God will ever accept me. And there's no way I can ever be good enough and consistent enough to walk with Him. But what I love about Christ and what I love about what God's done for us is that not only does God walk with me, but in the moments when I stumble, He slows down with me. He picks me back up. He reminds me that I have a hope, that I have a future, that I have something beyond this moment. That even though the Bible tells us in Proverbs, even though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up. And I don't get back up in my own strength, but I get back up in the strength of Christ that leans beside me. Like he did for the woman who was caught in adultery, thrown before Christ and said, and the, the, the religious leaders stood around her and they told Jesus, this woman has committed a sin. She deserves death. And what did Jesus say? He who, has, he who is without sin may cast the first stone. And as he leaned down and started to write in the sand, we don't know what he wrote, but the men started to leave that moment. And Jesus leans down as she has fallen and dirty and broken and picks her up, says, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Christ leans into our life, offers us that same forgiveness no matter where we are or what we've done. And then in that, He invites us into a life of obedience. He invites us into a life of walking in the light that we don't have to walk in sinfulness anymore. We don't have to walk in the brokenness. We don't have to walk in the penalty or the power of sin. He's invited us to walk in a life and life abundant. And He says that we get that through proclaiming Christ as Lord and believing in His sacrifice on the cross on my behalf and understanding that I'm in desperate need of help and that Jesus provides the only help that can pay the debt, cancel the debt that I owe. And He offers that to all of us this morning. If you've never truly put your faith in Christ in that way, I pray this morning that you would believe that and you would receive that and begin to live in that. And listen, if you're a Christian here this morning and you have some resubmitted yourself to the penalty and the power of sin, I pray this morning that you would see that you hold the keys to walk through that gate and begin to walk in the life that God's called you to. He has not cast you out, that He has not pushed you away, that He is waiting on you, that He is waiting on you. If you could just take away one thing this morning, I pray it would be this. Because Christ erased the penalty of the law and the power of sin, we can live in the prize of a new life. That we can live in the prize of a new life, a gift that He's given to us that we did not earn or deserve. He's offered that to us. Church, we bow our heads and pray together this morning. Father God, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you that what you offer us is a payment for a debt, for a record, for, for sins stacked up against us that we could never afford to pay on our own. 
God, you are so good and gracious. God, and we are so sinful and broken. God, and I'm so thankful that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to die. God, that you didn't wait for me to believe you and accept you to die for me, that you died for me before I even thought a thought towards you. God, and you've done the same for each and every one of the people here this morning. God, I pray that if there is one that has not put their faith in that identification in you and being in you, our lives in you, conjoined with your righteousness, God, and allowing you to bear the shame, allowing you to bear the debt and, and the, the weight of our sin. God, I pray that they would relinquish control of that this morning, letting go of those things. God, and that being the first step of many steps to walk in a life with you, that they would just believe in you, believe you died, believe you rose, and that believe that you did all those things for us because we were sinful and broken and couldn't save ourselves. God, if there's a believer here today that is living in captivity to the penalty of sin and the power of sin, God, that they would begin to walk in new life. God, realize they have the keys to overcome the defense of the enemy and walk in victory because you've shamed the enemy. You've disgraced the enemy. You've overwhelmingly defeated the enemy and taken the enemy's weapons against us. God, so I just pray for power, strength, and courage this morning as they walk into their lives, as they, uh, they, as they raise their kids, as they uh, live their lives with their spouses, as they work in their jobs and live their lives among people around. God, I pray for power. God, I pray for victory. God, I pray for courage and comfort. God, but Lord, not comfort in captivity. God, but comfort in your grace and your mercy in moving forward. God, I pray for our church. I pray for, for all that you'll do through us here at Cross Point Community Church. God, I just ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.